And hello and welcome to this week's edition of Novak Now. I'm Jake Novak here on the Nachum Siegel Network. This is the Cholomoy Pesach edition of the program. And uh, I don't know how your Sadarim were, how your Pesach was. I know probably everyone listening who observes Pesach did not go to any synagogue services. I don't know anywhere in the world where they may be going on, maybe in Sweden in the small Jewish community that remains there. Um, Coronavirus is the least of the Jewish community's problems in a country like Sweden for the most part. As we know, it's been targeted so much by um, Islamic terrorism in that country and other issues. Uh, So I don't know where there were any real Pesach synagogue services. Um, so it came down to the Siddharim, which is really the, the focal point of Pesach anyway. I mean, if there ever was a homebound Jewish holiday, it certainly is Pesach. That's the one where really the home absolutely outweighs anything in the synagogue. Um, in some ways, you could say the same about the first part of Shabbat, right? But the first part of Shabbat, you have a very short service that usually just the men go to on Friday night, Friday afternoon, Friday night, and then... You have that meal at home, you have all the rituals at home that we that we observe, and then you move on. And it isn't until Saturday morning and afternoon that you really have a shul-focused part, a synagogue-focused part of that holiday. So, And I think that that's one of the reasons why so many Jews have become so much more focused on Passover as the, it's, I guess the, all the surveys show that Passover has become, over the last 20, 30 years, the most observed Jewish holiday, even more than Yom Kippur or Rosh Hashanah. Um, and I think it's because it's, it's done in the home. Jewish people, especially, you know, we, you can say, oh, it's mostly not, not very religious Jewish people, but there are a lot of Jewish people who are just very, very turned off by the synagogue. They won't come in. In fact, the joke we have in my family is that whenever anyone calls to bother me about a meeting they want to have with me or something they want to talk about with me that I'm not so interested in having, I'll tell them, absolutely, just meet me you know, at, at, you know, at Shul on Saturday. We'll talk about it during uh, the Kiddush. And I know that no one will, will, will come and bother me because they don't want to come. So, but Passover has always been this home-based holiday because you know, if you live outside of Israel, you have two of these big seders, which are, which are in, in a way a service. Of course, it's also a meal. And this year was so different in that, you know, if you were following the rules, you didn't have any extended family. Uh, you basically should have had a Seder where just the people who are living in your house previous, prior to the beginning of Passover, could be with you for the Seder. And that's the way it was in my home with just my wife and my two daughters. I know of some people who had a Seder just by themselves, one person Seder, which is really rough. Uh, for me to hear about people doing that. A lot of people having seders just with one other person. Um, it's tough. It was tough. It was tough for me to see people talking about it. It was tough for me to even think about not having, for example, my wife's parents who are just a few minutes away from us. We could not have them. And we've only been able to talk to them through you know, screen doors for the last few weeks, which has been rough for my daughters who are close to their grandparents and and all of that. So... It's not the kind of Pesach that we ever really envision. Um, I can't even imagine what it's doing to that the industry of, of Passover hotels and resorts, and which has always been kind of an interesting, problematic debate for me within my circle of friends and people we talk about all the time. Because those 
those resorts and 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 hotels and 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 and, go, and getaways for Passover are, as you might ex- expect, quite quite expensive. And uh, we talk about that all the time. Um, but I, I certainly don't wish the failure of that industry, and I can't imagine how easy it will be for them to recover going into next year. Although I do believe some of them really are focused from year to year. In other words, they make their business from one year to the next and whatever they can recover from the investments they made into this Passover, if they can get any of that back, uh, it's possible they can, they can just get it next year. It's not like they're a running business uh, 52 weeks out of the year that has been indefinitely shut down. They lost this year and that's going to be devastating, but it's possible that they'll recover. So I certainly don't wish that on them, even though these extremely expensive Passover getaways have always been kind of mind boggling to me. Uh, You know, you just heard me say at the beginning of the program that Passover Pesach is such a home-based holiday. And by that, I mean, literally home. I've always wondered about how comfortable it is to have a Seder, even if it's just your family and you get a private room or a private table at a big dining room, what that's like to have a Seder that way. So Anyway, I just hope that whoever's listening who does observe Pesach is having is is doing it the best they can, and it hasn't been too lonely, and it hasn't been too sad. Uh, no one has been hurting, I think, for meaning, and by that I mean just thinking about having your your correct priorities. I mean, if you're sitting at the at the Pesach table there and that part in the Seder where we're supposed to imagine that we got through slavery personally or some kind of tremendous challenge personally in our lives, I think all, all of us were just hoping that that's something that will happen real soon, that we'll get through this and it will not be too painful. Um, but you know, from an economic standpoint, and I don't want to talk too much about this right now because it's obviously something that changes from day to day, but it just doesn't seem like there's any way to avoid a major economic hit for this country. I would like to believe that we can bounce back quickly, and in some ways, I think some industries will. But unless we have an entirely new debt forgiveness vehicle set up for a number of industries, I think it's going to be very, very hard for us to see real job recovery in a lot of major industries. I think it's going to be hard for us to see spending power return for folks and so many things are going to be affected by this. And, you know, we'll, we'll be second-guessing ourselves and trying to figure out for a long time whether our economic response, I'm not talking about the medical response, which is also something we have to talk about, but, but, but I feel a little bit more qualified to talk about the economic response. I think we're going to spend a long time trying to figure out whether that was the appropriate response, whether shutting down basically every industry was the right response or not. And it does seem like it probably wasn't. It does seem like there were some industries that maybe should have shut down sooner. It does seem like there were some industries that should never have shut down. I am very, very concerned about the school situation. Because if you continue to keep the schools closed even as basically we're seeing no, I mean, statistically speaking, no children being seriously affected by this. But if you continue to keep the schools closed, then a tremendous percentage of adults cannot go back to work. So we can talk all we want about opening up certain industries, opening up offices, opening up even transit. But if the schools remain closed, you're going to have 
what is in effect a 30% unemployment rate in this country because at least 30% of American parents who work, American adults who work, do so at the, at the pleasure of the school system. Um, a former colleague of mine at CNBC, Brian Sullivan, uh, over the years became an expert. He talks about it all the time. If you ever look at any of the stuff he, he writes or tweets, I think his, his, well, I know his Twitter, his Twitter handle is SullyCNBC, at SullyCNBC. He often, he has done a lot of research in this and talks about it a lot and talks about the childcare expenses in this country and how the need for childcare has kept our participation rate very lower than it should be in this country. And when we talk about participation rate, that's the, some people believe that's the real unemployment, that's the real employment rate that we should be looking at. In other words, what percentage of the adult population is actually working? And even during this economic expansion that we have seen coming right up until the coronavirus, the economic expansion that we've seen ever since the Great Recession, so ever since the Great Recession peaked in 2009, We've seen an economic expansion in this country, but we haven't seen a real strong expansion in the participation rate. We've seen some nice moves upward in the last year or so, but working age adults working has still been pretty much in the low 60% range for a long time in this country. And a lot of people have said, you know, it really should be better than that. In an economy that has, in a GDP that's 17, 18, 19 trillion dollars, or whatever it is, there should be more people working. And there's all kinds of excuses for it, and a lot of, and, and, and almost all of them are valid to some degree. But one of the ones you don't hear enough, except from people like me or Brian Sullivan, is childcare. How many parents, and it's usually women, I know that there are a lot of single dads out there and same sex couples out there who are men, so I don't want to say it's just women, but it's primarily women. There are a lot of women who are not out in the workforce because they don't have childcare options or the childcare options are so expensive that it doesn't make sense. If they're going to be going and taking a job that, co- that it will pay them $60,000, $70,000 a year, but childcare is going to be thirty dollars to $35,000, you know, for a lot of women, that's not worth it. And I'm giving you a decent margin there. I think that there are some worse margins for a lot of women, especially in some of the major cities. So... That has been one of those things that has been on my mind for a long time, even well before this coronavirus outbreak. And so, of course, school and public school for a lot of people is that free aspect of childcare. In other words, they may pay extra for the hour before school starts or the hour or half hour before school starts for some kind of childcare and then pay extra for the few hours after school before the mom and dad come home. But they can't pay for eight, nine hours of childcare per day, or they don't even have that available. Um, and with that in mind, if you keep the public schools closed, and, and there was controversy here in the New York area over the weekend where Mayor de Blasio seemed to just unilaterally say, we're closing the New York City public schools for the rest of the year, and Governor Cuomo seemed to overrule him on that. So, of course, now we're just in limbo over this question. And my children do not go to New York City public schools, so this isn't me personally saying I'm in limbo, but a lot of people are in limbo over this. And understand, but, but one thing you cannot forget, if a major city's public schools are closed for the rest of the year, then you are guaranteeing 
that about 30% of the people who otherwise could go back to work if businesses were reopened at the same time will not be able to go back to work. So you're keeping us at a very, very high unemployment rate if you keep those schools closed. Um, And of course, another thing that I brought up and, and other people have brought up as well about this question is why are people like Mayor de Blasio, let's say he did have the authority on his own to close the public schools for the rest of the year, and, and the governor of Virginia has already done this. Like weeks ago, he closed schools for the rest of the year. And I guess California did it as well. Why are they doing this at this point? Why can't this be something that they reevaluate from week to week? The numbers and the models and the, the death rates and all uh, from coronavirus have been changing rapidly, mostly for the better, in the last few weeks. Why, why does this decision have to be made now? Is this a, is this a teacher's union thing? They want to know how many days they're going to have to prepare to get back uh, to, to work. I'm not really sure why this has to be made now. And I get the feeling that it has a lot to do with political posturing. It has a lot to do with politicians wanting to come out and say that they took radical action as soon as possible. And point their fingers at others who aren't. And then also be able to push back on anyone who says, well, you didn't act decisively enough so i i think that this is a lot about politics but whether you agree or disagree with decisions like this i just want everyone to remember especially those of you who are listening who are not involved in the public schools who don't have children in the public schools i just want you especially to understand that if we close our schools down then you are closing down the economy for the parents of about 30% of those kids. And about 30% of our workforce will not be able to get back to work whether businesses are opened or not. And that's not a decision that we can leave to people who don't really have the accountability there. It's it's just not the unilateral decision that we allow even elected people to have. And those are the elected people. You know, I'm getting a lot of messages this morning about Dr. Anthony Fauci. And we know that he's been very popular. People like his personality. He's been saying some things that seem to encourage people from both the right and the left when it comes to coronavirus. But increasingly, folks on the right are getting angry at Dr. Fauci. And of course, those people who are getting angry at him from the right are going to be portrayed as just crazy Trump supporters. And they don't like the fact that Fauci said some critical things about Trump. I don't have a problem with that. That's not the issue. The issue is who elected Dr. Fauci? The issue is who is he accountable to? The issue is he's made a lot of mistakes on this. Take a look at what he said in February when he told people more than once that there was almost zero chance that that people would get the virus here in this country. Now, he's allowed to make a mistake. I don't think he's a bad person for making that mistake. And I don't think he had any nefarious plot plans behind making those mistakes. But he can't be the only voice that people listen to and take authoritatively on this thing. That's not the way it works. This is still a democratic republic, and I don't know who elected him. The answer is nobody elected him. And that doesn't mean I want him to be fired. I don't want him to be fired. I'm not going to tweet the fire Fauci hashtag out that the people want, but I want him to be joined by other folks who make these decisions. I've written on a number of occasions now that we need a group of people from a number of different walks of life 
experts from, from economic and psychological fields, those fields, to, to join Dr. Fauci in, in making some of these decisions and saying some of these things and, 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 and talking with the American people. I don't know why we have to have the same cast of characters speaking at these daily White House briefings. I don't think that that's helpful. And I don't think that Dr. Fauci is qualified enough to talk about every little thing. He's not. Okay? He's not. He can't talk about, he should not be the one talking about when we reopen the economy on his own. He can have an opinion. And I'd like to have him be one of the people who weighs in on this topic. But when he talks about, well, maybe in May we can reopen and maybe in November we can get back, that's too long. That's too long, in my opinion. But if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. But I'm not going to be told I'm wrong only by one voice, by someone who we didn't elect and by someone who doesn't necessarily understand the macro economy. I'm not saying Dr. Fauci is an ignorant about the economy. I'm just saying he's not as, as well-versed in it as he is about other things. And he has too much of a voice right now. And what's really, really dangerous now, in my opinion, is that it's going to become now a right-left thing. You're going to have the, the left and the Democrats supporting everything Fauci says no matter what. You're going to ha- you could have the right and the Republicans opposing everything Dr. Fauci says from now on no matter what. The facts be damned. And now we're in trouble. That's what happens when you have someone who isn't even elected by anybody. Then it just becomes a popularity contest based on how someone is, looks on television. So I would like to see some more voices, and you've heard me talk about that in some previous editions here of Novak Now. Another thing I want to talk about is some of the things, this is one of the things, you're going to hear this sentence as the prefix to discussions about a lot of different things. The, the sentence will, the prefix, the beginning of that sentence will go as follows. The coronavirus crisis has exposed blank in America. In other words, problems that were around even before COVID-19 hit us have now become, some of these problems have now become even more evident. And I don't mean necessarily become worse, in some cases they are, but they become even more evident to people. And I think one of them that we're seeing really, really clearly is the fact that we don't have a great amount of hospitals, hospitals and places where we need them in this country. Now, this has been a topic that I've researched and worked on and written about for many years, at least five years, <laughs> uh, where I've talked about the fact that hospitals have been merging and consolidating at a pace that would make bank mergers and cell phone company mergers look like nothing. As an industry, since the late 1990s, hospitals have been com- com- combining and merging more than any other. Now, just think about that. And think about how scary that is. I'm not wild about the fact that banks have consolidated so much. I'm not wild about the fact that my cell phone company choices have been reduced. But I'm really not wild, and I'm really worried about the fact that hospitals and my health care options have really been reduced. You know, just about 10 years ago, only about a quarter of American doctors were working for a hospital on a hospital system. Now it's well up between 40 and 50%. And you want to have a number, you want to have a decent number of doctors working in hospitals. That's not, just, you know, working as hospital employees. That's, that's not the problem. The problem is you got to have more private practice doctors 
Because thankfully, think of all the medical issues that you've had in your life. And unless you're listening now and you've had some serious, serious medical problems, most of us, even those of us who aren't in the total best of health, most of the time when we get treatment for something or we seek medical treatment, it's not at the hospital. It's at our doctor's office. That is the point of care for most of us most of the time. And for hospitals to be buying so many of these private practices, which some private practice doctors love that idea because they were just so tired of doing the billing and the insurance company stuff. Of course, the joke was on them because they still have to do plenty of that. They just have to kind of do it with the hospital now. There's still plenty of all the private practice doctors I see who were bought up by hospital networks still have plenty of business folks in that office and plenty of you know people who we might even call a nurse or whatever, they're, but they're not really nurses. They're just there to, to do the paperwork. That hasn't changed. There's still plenty of paperwork going on in these offices. And they've lost their autonomy. And we've lost the innovation that comes from the competition. There should be competition between hospitals and private practice doctors. But more importantly, there should be pro- pro- competition between hospitals and other hospitals. And hospitals have consolidated in this country. And they've consolidated more and more. And typically, as you would expect, think about all the other monopolies in this country that we think about. When you go into the really poor parts of the country, that's where you don't see them because they know that that's not where they won't make as much money. So do you have Starbucks, for example, in really, really rough areas, really, really bad neighborhoods? The answer is no. Now, it's interesting. If you've been following Starbucks, you know that in the last year or so, they've decided to try to make an effort to, to open more locations there. And maybe that will be successful and maybe it won't. But their effort there just proves my point. When you become a large monopoly in this country, you're, uh, you don't feel compelled necessarily to focus on some of these poorer areas because you're not competing against anybody there. So what do you care? You're just not going to be, you're not going to go there. You will focus on the money-making areas. For those of you listening to me in Manhattan, Manhattan is a hospital mecca. Manhattan has not only a lot of hospitals, but a lot of really world-renowned hospitals, and they're all in the same area. I mean, the Upper East Side of Manhattan is like Hospital Central, right? You go near Park Avenue and Fifth Avenue where the money is, you got hospitals. A lot of them. I mean, you can't even remember to name all of them. You got New York Hospital, Cornell Medical Center, you've got Sloan Kettering, you've got Mount Sinai, you've got Lennox. I mean, the, the numbers go on and on. The names go on and on. And I've written for a long time about how this should not be allowed. You know, we block mergers in this country every once in a while. We blocked the big pharma merger a few years ago when, when Pfizer tried to buy Amgen, right? But we don't ever seem to block hospital mergers. I can't remember any hospital merger that's been blocked in the last several years. And so if you take a look at my Twitter feed, at JakeJakeNY, you'll see a recent column that I wrote talking about how this coronavirus problem has exposed that pro- this again. Again, we're seeing where are the hospitals that have been overrun? What, what are the areas that are having a problem? And that is in the New York area, which is still ground zero. And I hate to use that term again, but it is still really ground zero for the coronavirus in this country. It's some of these poor areas... By poor, I mean relatively poor. Elmhurst Hospital in Queens, people have been talking about. The outer borough hospitals. And so there was a doctor, an emergency room doctor, who's also an expert in emergency medicine, who over the weekend tweeted out 
a 12 or 13 part tweet explaining so many things about who gets admitted to the hospital in New York, who doesn't, who's showing coronavirus symptoms. It was very, very good. And at the end, he said, and this is exposing, remember, I told you, this is going to be the prefix for a sentence that you're going to hear in a sentence you're going to hear a lot of. He said that this coronavirus issue has exposed what what he already had been talking about for a long time, and people like me have been talking about for a long time, which is the shortage of hospitals in key areas. You know, years ago, when I first started writing about this and I talked about doctor shortages, I got a big pushback from people from major cities who were saying, oh, what are you talking about? There's no doctor shortage. Just people don't want to be a doctor in a rural area. That's all. And of course... You know, I noted, well, it's easy for you to say, you don't have a shortage in your area. If you're, call- if you're writing to me from Chicago or from Los Angeles or New York City, and you're relatively affluent, of course you don't. You see, men- you see more doctors than you can shake a stick at. But in states like Kansas, there's like only one hospital system in the whole state. They own all the hospitals, and there's not a lot of them. Because when, you become a, when, you, when companies merge, when you have a big monopoly in something, you don't have to spend as much money setting up new locations, setting up new points of service. You start to ration it because you don't have to. You're not, you're not worried about... You, you, the, only pl- the places where the biggest revenue come in is that's really all, all... That's the only area where you need to focus on. You become... You don't have to worry about competing. You know, Starbucks... People ask me, well, how come there are two Starbucks within a block of each other in, in this part of Manhattan? And the answer is because they're trying to squeeze out the competitors. I had a friend who one summer sold Chipwich ice cream sandwiches. Remember those? They're still around. It's not like you have to remember them. And he noted one day that across the street there was a guy who was selling hot dogs. And two brothers set up two hot dog stands sandwiching the other hot dog guy just so they could squeeze him out. And then when he, when he went out of business or realized he had to get out of that area, then one of the brothers left also. So not only did you have that competing hot dog stand go away, but the other brother's extra hot dog stand went away as well. So you, from in, in, in one quick mo- moment, you had three hot dog stands dissolve into just one. And hospitals are no different. Starbucks is no different. They don't need all these locations, and they don't need to provide all this service once they have the most lucrative corner of the, of the street relatively speaking, you know, metaphorically speaking, once they have that all wrapped up for themselves. And we allow these hospitals to consolidate. Why? Politics. In most states, the hospitals are the number one employers. So they have huge political clout. They go to the governor and they say, hey, I've got X million or X hundreds of thousands of your, of your voters, workers, of your people. If you don't make us happy... Uh, we're going to make sure that you lose a, a, a lot of jobs. We'll move business elsewhere, whatever we're going to do. And then in states like New York, where hospitals aren't the number one employer, where the real, the still the, the most financially powerful industry in New York is still Wall Street, even in New York you have inordinate power for the hospitals because you have a guy named Michael Dowling, who's the CEO of the Northwell Hospital System, which is very big here on Long Island, he is as close with Governor Cuomo as he could possibly be. So he has outsized influence. So folks, understand now, again, the prefix, the beginning of a sentence you're going to hear a lot of, and I'm focusing it on hospitals today, but you're going to hear this 
sentence a lot, which is the coronavirus crisis in America has exposed blank problem that we've had for years. And in this case, it's hospitals. We need more of them. And as you've heard me say here many times on the, on the Novak Now program on the Nachum Siegel Network, if you are talking about healthcare in this country, it's quality and it's cost, and you are not talking about it in terms of supply and demand, then you're really not having a conversation worth listening to. I want to hear about supply and demand. Otherwise, it's unicorns and rainbows. This is Jake Novak. This has been the Novak Now program. I hope to speak to you again next week.